Impressed. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a history episode for you guys. It's been a little while. It has. It has. And I actually have my computer completely closed. You will just be present. I'm just gonna be trying to be present in this in the in these in these engaged in these moments. And this is this is cool because we've been talking about this brand quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. We have, as far as yeah. topical news. And I happen to drive one of these cars. Well, not one <laughs> not one of these cars, but one of these cars from the manufacturer. We talked about it last week on on the episode. What? A Miata? Oh! Yeah! Remember? I was like, I, this isn't about Mercedes. Did you get the <laughs> wrong manufacturer, Chris? No, that's it. No, we're good. Um, s- speaking of Mercedes, actually, why don't you roll through one of our sponsors before yeah, we get too far? Yeah, let's talk about WeatherTech. So, Chris, Thanksgiving is approaching very quickly. It I is. can't believe how this month is just flying by. Yeah, the Christmas S- stuff is out in the store. Oh, it's it's terrible. But before heading off to a relative's house for the weekend for Thanksgiving, be sure your trunk is equipped with a cargo truck lighter by WeatherTech. They feature a textured finish to prevent shifting, and cargo trunk liners are custom-fit, laser-measured cargo trunk mats designed to keep messes, dirt, and spills away from your car's interior. And if you live in a cold part of the country, the good news is they will not crack, break, or warp even in extreme temperatures. They're made right here in the USA and install easily to protect your investment from everyday wear and tear. The containment system organizes your trunk area, so you got all your stuff on one side. It's a perfect addition to these cargo trunk liners. So, Chris, be sure to head over to WeatherTech.com to check out all their products. And I don't we think also, we want me to be heading over there. I think we want all the listeners to be heading over there. So well, you weren't paying attention, so I had to call <laughs> you out there. No, but we do have another giveaway for the month of November. WeatherTech has been awesome about this. This month, you can enter to win two $50 WeatherTech gift cards at WeatherTech.com slash Overcrest. All right. So did you do anything with your cars? At all lately? Um, I put new snow tires on. Yeah, we got our Nokian snow tires on. I got those on today. Um, but I also did new brakes on that car. They were starting the the little light was flashing on the dash. Oh, it's, you got the wear sensor. I have on the, the fancy Mercedes. I do, which is kind of crazy for something a little older like that. It's got yeah. the thing where it grounds out basically if it gets far enough, yep. and then it starts touching the the rotor and grounds out and throws the little signal up on the dash. That's been flashing flashing since I bought the car. Okay. So it was time to get the brakes done. It's flashing. So well, it's flickering because oh. it's grounding and not grounding. It's not like a, hey, this needs, it's not. So usually the way I'm familiar with it, in the brake pad, there's actually a little wire embedded. And it's not that it grounds out. It breaks basically the circuit by breaking that wire. This and so it's either on or it's off. This is different because okay. what this does is it kind of clips onto the edge of the pad. I got gotcha. And then as the pad wears down, it runs into this sensor, which then grounds out. I think sure. it's probably sending a small amount of voltage yeah. through the the caliper carrier where it's got the little it's got it's like a one pin plug gotcha. that plugs into the thing and it goes so uh that was still on after i did the work and i found out i broke one of the wires for the <laughs> sensors so i kind of got it to work it's off it's fine now but one thing i did notice is when i backed the car out of the garage there was a huge pile of brake fluid on the ground oh which is you know that heart sinking feeling <laughs> of oh my god i know what actually happened though yeah you had your reservoir topped up yes I and did. then when you open up your calipers to yes, put the I new did. pad in there it just has nowhere to go but out the top that's exactly right because i had i use the power bleeder to bleed the brakes and sure. what usually what i do is i'll use a turkey baster okay and you can suck some of that extra fluid out because it's got a max level right probably for that reason is why they have a max <laughs> level on that reservoir <laughs> yeah otherwise you just fill it up why not i actually thought it was uh, a washer fluid because i topped off the washer fluid at the same time which is blue 
And then I have Ate Blue racing. <laughs> That's why with. they changed the regulation, Chris, right. right there. I stuck my finger in it and I went, oh, that's not washer fluid. <laughs> and I was like, this is not good. But it ended up just being a, just being a mess. So uh, I now have decent brakes on the car as well as decent tires and decent heat. And all is good in the world. Very I'm good. also thinking about, here, maybe we can brainstorm on this. Okay, you let's and I a little bit. I have to figure out a way with the 911 because I'm going to take the front suspension. It has to come completely off. Yep, because you're going to replace that whole front pan. Well, first, I need to put the jig on it. So I got the jig from Aaron at Flat 6 oh, okay. here in Minneapolis. He lent me the jig, which is awesome. It bolts up to where the steering rack is. Sure. And then you can look and make sure that all the rest of the control arm points mount up as well, because it all mounts up together on this jig. Oh, geez. So I have to take the, all the suspension off that I already put on yep. like last winter. Was it winter? I, yeah, I think it was winter when I did this front suspension work. Okay. So all that stuff comes off. This jig mounts on, and then if everything lines up, I'll do the front pan. However, if not, if, if not I don't know what I'm going to do. Because okay. at that point, it needs more of a like a rack, like a frame rack. Oh, So right. it can, everything can be put the, back the to where it's supposed to. The select, yes. Yep. And I don't know. <clears throat> it scares me because I, I almost don't want to think about it because I can't afford to have someone put the car in a jig like well, that. I I could tell you for sure that the jig won't fit on my car, so <laughs> mine would probably need that regardless. So just take solace in that point. I don't at all. Um, so basically, the whole, so what's what, what do we need to brainstorm? Thing. Yeah. So the entire front suspension is going to be off the car, but I'm also going to redo the rear suspension on the car, and I'm taking the motor out and the transmission out. You're disassembling your entire car. Correct. I have to do, I have to check the thermostat on the rear of the motor. Right. And I'm going to put a clutch in the car because it's been 60, 50,000, 60,000 miles of pretty hard wear on the clutch. And if I'm going to take the motor out and I'm going to take the transmission out too, it doesn't make any sense to separate the transmission because no. it just pulls out. And what out. people, you know, if you're not familiar with these cars, it, it is very easy to drop the drivetrain out of these. It's basically a four bolts. Well, two are in the rear yep. and two are in the front. You take those off the, the transmission mount and then you take them off at the back where the engine is. Disconnect the fuel lines. There's a wire harness disconnect thing. Disconnect the axles. You're basically done. Yep. And usually you pull the rear bumper off so you can slide the motor out because yeah. you and I don't have a shop. So we work on the floor so we can do it that way. But here's the thing. Motor's going to be out. Clutch is going to go in. I'm going to do that anyway just because I'm, in th I'm there. Okay. I don't want to. It's going to need a clutch at some point. And what the heck else is winter good for here? Exactly. <laughs> tearing it. It's tearing apart. Okay. Um, I'm not going to have any rear suspension on the car either right. because I'm going to redo the rear suspension. All the front suspension is new except for the front pan, which is junk. So I'm also going to do the rear. So I have all the bushings okay. and stuff for the rear. So here the car is going to be with no suspension right. at all on the car, right. which is sometimes when you use jack stands, they go on the control arms or they go on the swing arms right. or whatever, yeah. depending on what you're doing. I'm going to have nothing. So I have to build a jig to hold the car up. Now, I thought about getting um, – they make – uh, RV jacks that are screw jacks that have kind of sure. platforms on yep, them yep. and you could put one of those on each corner but I don't think I want to do that I think I want to have something where I can move the car around if yeah. I want to Yep. so I either will make something out of steel mm -hmm. or I make something out of wood and I thought about okay well I want it to be kind of high because I still want to be able to get under the car right. to work on it so it's still got to be up a ways so it's got to be up at least 24 to 30 inches I oh, would yeah. think so I got to figure out a way to mount casters to something to get it off the ground Right. so here's what I was thinking okay First thing was I'll get two railroad ties. 
Why? And then I'm like, okay, that's really heavy. That's ridiculous. That's yeah, not a good no. idea. So then I go, okay, this is like my thought process. Okay. This is like, walk get, me through it. It gets better. Okay. <laughs> and then I go, all right, why don't I just buy something from Jags? I'm like, okay, that's $600 for a metal adjustable jig. That doesn't really even go that high. Okay. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that either. And then my buddy Dave sent me something that he did with his 914, which is take um, four four by fours, mm-hmm. have them vertical. It can be as tall as you want them to be. And then he had some plywood that connected each. It basically did a box around these four four by fours that were vertical, mm-hmm. and then he mounted casters to the bottom of that. I said, "Okay, well that's okay." And then I said, "Well, I have a pallet as well. I think I could put a pallet under there uh-huh. and put like a, maybe like a I could get a ten by ten or something and put some big heavy duty casters on it and then have it sit on the pallet because I want I don't I want the whole floor pan you know to kind of be you know." It just to sit on the car, and so I can just rotate it around or whatever. Hey. So far, the best option is to do the four four by fours that pull, sit up, and they can sit under kind of where the where you'd put um, a lift or a hoist, where you'd put the pads for that is where these would where these would go. That and seems they would say, extremely unstable. What are you talking about? It's just gonna tip over, dude. Did you not listen? I said there's gonna be um, three quarter inch plywood that goes all the way across horizontally yeah, and it. screws six times. It's these are I you know, know thirty I inches just, tall. Here's what I would do. Okay, what do you got? I had several two ton lift tables that I've since sold on Craigslist, right? Where you literally could jack it from you know twelve inches up to thirty six inches on this lift table. You have to keep in mind that my a jack only goes so high. Right. I don't think my jack goes 36 inches up in no, there. No, you lower this table underneath it, and then you oh, jack the table Are you talking about something up. for like an ATV or a yeah. motorcycle? Yes. It's too small. You I don't need, think I you need could to, somehow secure that? You could do that. If you had the rear set up or you had the front set up, you could yeah. use that. But this is those are only like 18 inches wide or 20 inches wide. Yeah. I need something that's the full width of the car to support each corner so the car is supported properly, as if it was on a hoist. Right. So I want four points. Or you could just go in with me and we could get one of those max jacks, like just the low lift portable ones. Yeah, but you still have to mount something into the floor. You still have to mount screws for it to mount in your concrete. Right. I don't want to do that either. That sucks. Oh. You know, I, that sounds great. But then I still wouldn't be able to move the car around. And then I am also have hoist arms that I've got to like move yeah, around and they're, they're in the way. My garage isn't that big. Right. So I'm kind of just trying to figure it out. What I'm going to do. I still think the I, four four by fours is a pretty good idea. I would put it on casters, though. Yeah. Oh, of course. Casters okay. go on the bottom. So you yeah. mount like a caster at the bottom a, of the four by four. I have a collection of casters also. Are they all from can, Harbor Freight? No. They're all industrial uh, supply ones. I want something that's got the Delrin wheels. Yep. You know, the nice red I, Delrin wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll figure something. I'll see what I got you got. You covered on that and then uh, Aaron says he's got a, either that or he's got a couple stands that he's made and used to do this type of thing. Oh, well, and there he, you go right there. Yeah, but I want to be able to move the car. I want to be able to move the car. I want to be able to turn the car around because I want to be able to do the front pan, and then I want to be able to turn around to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to. How be- heavy is the chassis going to be without any suspension? No well, the car weighs thing. so the car weighs twenty three hundred pounds, probably okay. right about, and the engine and transmission is probably six hundred pounds. Okay, so we're at seventeen. So and minus then maybe another four hundred pounds worth. Of I was going to say stuff. three three hundred yeah. pounds. So. Not, still, not, let's say it's, it's 1,500 not pounds. Yeah. It's still heavy. Yeah. It's not something you want falling on your leg or anything Probably like that. Probably not. But it would be easy to move it, or move it around if it didn't have any of that stuff sure. on it as well. Yeah. So we'll see how things go. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm just, I'm really having this fear with the jig when I bolt it up. I've been What kinda, about um, some heavy-duty cabinets? Like, it, like the big workbench cabinets that have the big casters. You just use two of them, and that's basically your whole caster card situation. Mm-hmm. 
No? That doesn't seem good. That doesn't seem good at all. That sounds. I'm full of ideas, not always good ones. Yeah, well, my railroad tie idea wasn't very good either. So no, it wasn't. wasn't. But, so I still think the four posts of the, I got to measure the distance apart of them. Okay. The, the distance apart on where the hoist pads will go on a 911 yeah. and then kind of draw it out. And then I can. I would just run like two by 12s underneath it horizontally and then build your chassis off that. So you just have basically two arms underneath the vehicle. Two arms. Well, yeah, you could do that too. That you could put those on top of the posts if you yeah. wanted to. You could do it. Multiple this is getting ways. boring. So let's move on. Yes, let's move on. What All do we right. got? What do we? What's our uh, history so episode? Today? I'm not going to tell you quite yet, although you already alluded to it. I'm sorry. That's Maybe, all right. Do you want me to bleep it out? Nah. Okay. What do we got? Felix Heinrich was born August 13th, 1902, in a small town in what is now southwestern Germany. From a young age, it was clear that he was gifted with an ingenious spatial imagination and an immense interest in machines. Take note, Chris. That might be important. All right, I'm taking note. He was the only son of Rudolph, not the red-nosed reindeer, a forest assessor. Rudolph the forest assessor. Less catchy of a song. <laughs> what is the song? You, you weren't paying attention. I know I wasn't. Uh, I feel bad. Rudolph the forest assessor. <laughs> <laughs> sorry man i don't know if i can get on board with that one all right anyway so rudolph he was the son of rudolph he was a forest assessor and his wife was gertie and unfortunately rudolph was killed in action after being sent off to fight in world war one now after his mother was widowed felix couldn't afford university education or even an apprenticeship okay so felix and his mother moved to heidelberg where he worked at a publishing press however each day after long hours toiling away at this printing press, he didn't go home. Young Felix instead kept working. You see, Felix and a few of his friends had started up a small machine shop in a backyard shed. Even at the young age of 17, he clearly had grand aspirations, having reportedly told his friends that he, quote, dreamt of constructing a car with a new type of engine, half turbine, half reciprocating. It would be my invention. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. What, you're making it seem like this guy's in a castle somewhere with like I, water dripping from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> However, we would be kind of remiss if we didn't touch on Felix's uh, political leanings. All right. Tell us about Felix. So you see, this was Germany in the early 1920s, after all. And it turns out that Felix became a member of various radical right-wing anti-Semitic organizations. In 1922, he became a member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or as we now know it, the Nazi Party. In fact, Felix was so deeply involved with the Nazis, Heinrich Wagner himself appointed Felix with the leadership of the Hitler Youth. Wow. Okay. Wagner was later known this as the deep. Butcher of Alsace, having been personally responsible for sending thousands to their death in concentration camps. So yeah, our guy Felix is he's a terrible dude. He's, yeah, or at he's, least is dealing with lots of terrible dudes. He's the worst of humanity. Really, he is. So much so, it turns out, that he and Wagner had a falling out when Felix himself thought the Hitler youth should be more militarized. Wagner, on the other hand, thought it was it should just be like a political organization where they groom. Yeah, rah rah rah, propaganda. propaganda. Yeah, someday right. you'll be able to climb and get with the Idlewise thing, but not yet. But right. they, he wanted him to climb the mountain immediately. 
is basically what it was. Yeah. Okay. So in a particularly bitter and ugly controversy, Felix publicly accused Wagner of corruption. Wagner then swiftly stripped Felix of his position. So you here's here's an aside, Chris. Okay. If you have someone who brings you into any organization and they're like, here, I'm going to give you all this responsibility. It's going to be great. Don't tell him he's corrupt because then he'll just be like, okay, well, screw you. You're fired. Yeah, you're out of here. Right. So Wagner uh, basically stripped Felix of his position and managed to have him expelled from the party. So, Chris, this guy was deemed too crazy for the Nazis. Speechless. Yeah, I don't know. What's, I mean, that's... In well, terms of human debris, this yeah. guy sounds like human well, debris. Well, Felix wasn't done. He went out and found his own Nazi splinter group and continued his attack on Wagner. What is the Nazi splinter group called? The Nazi Nazis? What is I, yeah, I don't... There was no name given. Probably good. Probably good. Then, however, when the Nazis seized power in 1933, Wagner had Felix arrested and thrown in prison. Oops. <laughs> However, this is how ingrained this guy was. Hitler himself had Felix set free from prison. Wow, he knew Hitler. See, so he was did have a brown coat on, is my guess. Yes, yeah, yeah SS type guy. Well, the brown coats were the original, um, kind of the, the 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 tip of the spear for when the Nazis took over the party. Gotcha. Okay. You know, they they are the ones that would basically, if you they weren't in power yet, but if you didn't weren't towing the line or they would cause fights, go into bars, kill people. There's a lot of massacres that happened around that time. Yeah, all bad stuff. Yeah, so Hitler actually freed Felix. They were that close because besides his ardent political ideas, Felix was, as we alluded to earlier, a brilliant inventor. So during World War II, Felix was tasked with developing seals and rotary valves for German Air Force aircraft and Navy torpedoes. But that's not what he's known for. Fast forward many years after the war, to 1951, to be exact. That's when Felix began development of his engine. This revolutionary new engine design was named after the man himself. Did I forget to tell you Felix's last name? You did. It's Wankel. Felix Wankel. All right. That's right. The engine that was attributed later to Mazda was actually invented by a hardcore Nazi. So what is a Wankel engine, Chris? It's otherwise known as a rotary engine. The Wankel is a type of internal combustion engine using an eccentric rotary design to convert pressure into rotating motion. You know what's kind of sad in a way is if you were a dumb Nazi, you went on trial and you were put to death. Right. After the war. I mean, they just... They war were criminal. War right. criminal, you're done. But someone like Felix or you have Werner von Braun, who just basically was one of the first... American aerospace engineers helped get us to the moon. Yeah. He was like really in charge of the Saturn V rocket. Yeah. He's a Nazi. He designed rockets that, you know, killed all kinds of people. But guess what? He was useful. He was a useful Nazi. And it's almost like kind of a stain. It is. Knowing, it really is. you know, that these people got away with what they got away with just because they were smart. Yeah. That's why I wanted to touch on a little bit of where this actually came from. Yeah. As unfortunate as it is. All right. Let's hear so some more about Felix With the Wankel, Wankel rotary engine, there are no pistons and cylinders like a, a conventional internal combustion engine. Instead, the Wankel engine features a three sided symmetric rotor inside a housing. 
Now, this triangular rotor with bow-shaped faces is described as a rouleau triangle. And that bow, is that, that's how the compression ratio is, is decided, right? Is that If that's rounder, there's more compression in the, com, in the uh, combustion chamber. In the housing, yes, yeah. I believe you're right. Okay. So the rouleau triangle is basically a triangle. Instead of straight sides, it has kind of rounded sides, but there are still three points. Right. And this spins within an oval-like epicoid-shaped housing. Wow. I don't what word? Epitocrochoid. It's a geometric term. Okay. It's a weird oval. We're not mathematicians. Nah. Combustion occurs in the spaces between the triangular rotor and the oval housing, forcing the rotor to spin, generating torque upon an elliptical shaft in the middle of the rotor. Because it's not, it's offset, right? That's right. with the elliptical shaft. So exactly. it's constantly... It's, it's o- constantly off-center in the housing. Right. So that's basically your crankshaft, if you think about it. So... Yes. So this central drive shaft called the eccentric shaft or E shaft passes through the center of the rotor supported by fixed bearings. Now the rotors ride on eccentrics, which are analogous to like a crank pin in a piston engine. Okay. So the rotors rotate around the eccentrics and make orbital revolutions around the eccentric shaft. Seals at the apexes of the rotor seal against the periphery of the housing, dividing it into three moving combustion chambers. And that seal is called the apex seal. Right. And that is why every rotary engine you've ever seen is is basically a a mosquito fogger. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm sure you've heard of apex seals. I've heard that the apex seals are actually getting hard to find. For some of the old rotary, like some of the parts for that stuff oh, is really? getting really difficult to get a hold of. Huh. Yeah, the rotation of the rotor on its own axis is caused and controlled by a pair of synchronizing gears. This part I didn't know. So a fixed gear mounted on one side of the rotor housing engages a ring gear attached to the rotor and ensures the rotor moves exactly one third turn for each turn of the eccentric shaft. Did you know that apex seals are generally usually made out of metal? It's not like some sort of plastic or anything like that. Right. Yep. Because they're actually in basically a groove and are. It's pressure loaded. I don't know. Right. It's physical springs in there, but that's basically what it works on. It's almost like a piston ring. Essentially, exactly. is what yeah, it really yeah, is. It really is. Yeah. The rotor moves in its own rotational motion, guided by the gears in the eccentric shaft, not being guided by the external chamber. Now, the Wankel engine is actually described I just, as. I had an epiphany of. I'm sorry. I had an epiphany ahead. of why these might smoke. So when you have a when you have a piston, uh-huh. you have a compression ring. And then you have an oil ring. Yeah, oil control ring. Right. So which that's basically- scrapes the oil. Scrape is a bad term because you don't want scraping in your piston. But, but we- it wipes the oil off of the cylinder so that it doesn't, it doesn't burn. And doesn't smoke. But what does right. what do they not have in a rotary engine? An oil control ring. Right. They it's only, literally just one seal. They have one compression ring. That must be why they smoke because so, there's no oil control. This other thing is a lot of those guys with their old RX-7s run premixed gas. Oh with oil gosh. in it. Why not? Because it helps with the wear of the engine. Sure. It's basically a two cycle at that point. Um, the Wankel engine is actually described technically as a variable volume progressive cavity system. Thus, there are three cavities per housing, all repeating the same cycle. One full orbit of the rotor equates to three turns of the E shaft. Okay, so because it's elliptical and the way the gearing works, the rotor goes around once that causes the actual crankshaft to go around three times. Okay, got it. All parts rotate in one direction, though. 
as opposed to the common reciprocating piston engine when you think about it as pistons instantly change in direction at 180 degrees, you know, however many times a minute, depending on your revs. So in contrast, the reciprocating piston design, the Wankel engine delivers advantages of simplicity, smoothness, compactness, high revolutions per minute. Yeah, you can rev the, <laughs> you can rev the piss out of these things. It's it's insane that you can, you know, I've seen a couple of videos of some of the, you know, three rotor stuff revving yeah. up and you're like, uh it, is it going to keep going? Right. And then it just keeps going and going and exactly. going. Exactly. And then it dumps a bunch of fuel out and it's just a bunch of fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And most notably their characteristic is a high power to weight ratio. So you see a lot of these in airplanes as well, actually. Not and, less now, but and motorcycles. Snowmobiles. Oh, they did have a couple snowmobiles. In the early listings. 70s, Johnson Evinrude had rotary-powered snowmobiles. And I've seen them. They they sound kind of rad. Yeah. yeah for and they're smoking. Sure. Smoking everywhere. Oh, yeah. Just everywhere. But they're air-cooled rotary engines, basically. Wow. Pretty neat. Yeah. No, it is funny because the first time I heard an RX-7, I remember like watching it on an on-ramp or wherever I was. And I was like, why isn't he shifting? When's the shift point? When's the shift point? Because for me, for me, I'm, I'm usually thinking this. I'm thinking, please shift so I do not have to hear that car anymore. Yeah, it is a banshee. It They sound awful. They sound like someone dumped nitro into a weed whacker. Yes. I do not like the sound of most street rotary engines. They sound terrible. I do not like it. Am I the only one? They sound the same as the race engines. No, they don't. The race engines sound different. They rev higher. There's more compression. There's just more. Go- <laughs> it sounds, for some reason, it's a lot more raw and purposeful. When yeah. I, when, and plus, they have usually some crazy exhaust on it, or it's straight through. Straight headers. exhaust, yeah. But when you have a streetcar, they a usually have some sort, of, some sort of fat fart can thing going That's on. That's true. You know, I, nah. All right. Can't do it. So you talked about a few weird vehicles that use these. The first actual consumer automobile to use this newfangled engine design was the NSU Wankel Spider, which went into production in 1964. It was actually the first German car selected as the car of the year in 1968. It, the German car of the year or the, just the world car of the year? Uh, it was the first German car selected as car ah, of the gotcha, year. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. However, there were actually many different... You know what it looks like? It looks like that uh, that boat car. Oh, an amphibious car? It does look like some bit. sort of amphibious I car. Saw they're they're yeah. very strange looking. Not for me, not a very attractive car. No, there's a later car that looks very good. You'll take a look at. Uh, there were many different manufacturers that actually experimented with the design, being used in concept cars, motorcycles, airplanes, all around the world. In fact, it was around this time that Mercedes Benz completed the C111 experimental model, which utilized a three-rotor Wankel engine. That's the other thing we didn't mention, and everyone basically knows, is we're talking about describing these Wankel engines. You can have as many rotors basically linked together. Now, this car looks awesome. The C111? Yeah, it almost looks like it could be a Lotus of some sort. Yeah. It's really a cool-looking car. Super futuristic. This vehicle could reach a top speed of 290 kilometers an hour, but never reach serial production. It's basically wow. a concept car. Yeah, it uh, clearly uh, looks like it. It, does, <laughs> it looks like a concept car. It also doesn't look like anything else Mercedes was doing in the late 60s, early True. 70s. It doesn't look like anything that they would do. It's yeah. strange. So Felix Wankel himself became successful in business by licensing this design to various manufacturers around the world. However, despite these early developments and all the interest in the design, there were continuing issues with reliability stemming from those aforementioned apex seals. 
It wasn't until Mazda licensed the design, however, when they claimed to have solved the Apex seal problem once and for all, having operated test engines at high speeds for 300 hours at a time without failure. After years of development, Mazda released their first production Wankel engine car, the 1967 Cosmo 110S. Look up the Cosmo. All right. Mazda Cosmo. That is a cool-looking car. Now, Mazda chose to use the name Cosmo. It's definitely Japanese when you look at it. It, it has the headlights that are Japanese. The shape is very Japanese. I'm into it. Yeah. So they used the name Cosmo, taking advantage of the worldwide obsession with everything having to do with space race at the time, right? Yep. And the Cosmo seemed to fit the space age, as I said. The newfangled engine, the sleek styling. I think it's pretty cool. The next year... In an effort to prove the world the capabilities of the Cosmo's new engine, Mazda took their car racing. And they didn't choose just any race. No, they selected one of the most grueling endurance tests in Europe at the time. One, well, I'll just say, Chris, what is the most notorious, difficult European endurance race that you can think of? The Millimilia. I'm kidding. Le Mans, of course. Oh, what is it? Tell me. Do tell. So you're talking about the Le Mans 24 hours, right? Right, 24 hours, please. No, instead, we're talking about the 84-hour Marathon de la Route held at the legendary Nürburgring in Germany. Oh, my God. I had never heard of this. 84 hours at the Nürburgring is oh. just ridiculous. So Mazda entered two basically stock Cosmos amongst the 58-car field. The only major change to the cars was the addition of a novel side and peripheral port intake system. It was basically a butterfly valve switched from one side of the peripheral port as RPMs increased. So What's the peripheral port again? It's where the intake basically comes in. So what this is, this would that is basically... Would be considered the cylinder head area? Like yes, kind but of there the isn't ports? one. Yeah, but there's not one. Okay. <laughs> so it's basically a variable length intake system, something Mazda seems to like. More on that later. So what substitutes for a camshaft? There is no camshaft. I know, but how is it's, it... This is more analogous to a two-cycle. I, I know. It's so bizarre to and think how these cycles are nuts. I love two-cycle engines. Yeah. Brap. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So... These engines in the two Cosmos that were racing in this 84-hour endurance race were limited to 130 horsepower to maintain reliability. The cars ran together in fourth and fifth place for virtually the entire race, which sounds really boring, until one car was retired with an axle that was damaged in the 82nd hour. Only two hours left in an 84-hour race. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? What, that the axle broke or that you were the guy that forgot the axle back in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you, know, you didn't mean, have the replacement on. part. Bring an axle, for goodness uh, sake. That seems like any any parts that bolt on, bolt off, you would you, you would think you would bring have a trailer a, full. spares full of that yeah. stuff. However, the other car completed the race in fourth place. So basically the place it started on, it just <laughs> held position the whole time. I imagine this race being fairly boring because right you 84 hours, hours you gotta take it easy yeah the attrition rate is high you're not going crazy and the Nurburgring at 14 miles or whatever it is i think it's 13.7 miles or something like that yeah. 50 cars even spread out over that it's pretty well spread out and by True. the time you're you lose like 50 percent of the cars by hour 62 <laughs> it's getting kind of it's sleepy like you're you're in the stands vroom, and, and you then, wait two minutes yeah you're, just, you're just making yourself a sandwich between each car but just like that the wankel rotary engine was now proven in racing at least in mazda eyes the company followed with numerous wankel powered vehicles many of which were japanese market only vehicles and therefore 
you or I have never heard of. So these include, Chris, let's see how many of these you can recognize. How many of these do you think I'm going to (laughs) recognize? Two. Okay. (laughs) The Familia. No. The RX-3. Yes. The R-130. No. The R-100. No. The RX-2. No. The RX-4. No, but I have heard of an RX-3. I don't know how I haven't heard of these. I don't know. Th- obviously, hey, <laughs> if you get all the way to RX-8, you have to assume that there, there was, was a 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Yeah, okay. Well, there was a 2, 3, 4, 5. I don't see a 6, actually. Where's the RX-1? I don't know. There was no 1 or 6 as far as I could tell. Maybe they didn't want to do an RX-1 because they didn't want the, the populace to think, well, I don't want to buy the first one of these. So they went straight to the RX-2 being like, hey, we've got it all figured out by now. Actually, there was no RX-2. It's only the RX... Oh, yeah, I did say RX-2. Yeah, so that you got later. to the RX-2. Everybody said, They weren't oh. chronological either for some reason. They started with RX-3 from what I could tell. So after the RX-4, there was the Mazda Luce. Heard of that one? It sounds like You some, know the Luce very that well. That sounds like something that you would have for dinner. Yeah, it's pizza Luce. <laughs> <laughs> the Repu. That sounds like something you have after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so the repo was an acronym which stood for rotary engine pickup. Repo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about this one, Chris? The 1975 to 1977 Mazda Road Pacer. I like that. Yeah, I, I do can get too. that name. The RX-5 had never knew existed. How about this one? The RX-7. Yes. The one that is... Obviously, that's Mazda's... Well, you know... The Miata came out, and I think it's kind right. of taken a little thunder away from the RX-7, which if I had well, to choose one. It's just so much one, more ubiquitous. Yeah, but I would choose the RX-7, oh, right? Is there anybody sure. that wouldn't choose an RX-7 over no. a Miata? No, just so look why, at the values. Yeah, but why do people continue to just <gasps> Miata when they could just have an RX-7? Because it's so much cheaper and more plentiful than an RX-7. Some of the older RX-7s are... Yeah, like decent. an FB, FC yeah, series, we're not talking I suppose. About F, FD is the... Is, is the, the really cool yeah. one. I mean, some of the other ones got to be just as fun as a Miata, right? True. Yeah, I suppose you're right. And of course, the last road car to ever use the Wankel, the Mazda RX-8. Well, of course, we're getting the 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 next car, the one that's got a range extender with a, a rotary, rotary <sighs> range extender. That later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but enough about the road cars. Let's get back to the racing arena. But before we do that... We got a break for one of our sponsors, Petrobox. Petrobox, as you know, is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiast. These are subscription boxes made for car guys by car guys. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, novelty items, garage gear, stickers, you name it, and they bring it right there to your doorstep. There are actually two levels of subscription to choose from. You can have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month at $19.95, and you have the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. And it, so this is funny, Chris. So my dad listens to the podcast, of okay. course, and my mom was in the car once and she goes, well, what's this petrol box about? How come you didn't put this on your Christmas list? So there's a little, yeah. uh, little hint. That I would actually be, I like the idea of, cause there's so many of these box things out there. Right. There's a couple that I would like. There's a, there's a meat box. The butcher box, or I don't want to give. I guess we're gonna we'll, we'll call it the meat box, and then you've got like the the dudes dudes that like guns box, and then you've oh, got I don't know about that one. yeah. And then there's petrol box, which petrol box is, which is, is cool. the automotive yeah, so, box. Yeah. So head over to mypetrolbox.com. That's m y petrolbox.com, and use the code Overcrest at checkout to get six bucks off your first 
month's order. Awesome. All right, so back to Mazda and the racing cars. Now, one thing you need to realize is that Mazda at this point is a relatively small company. They had been active in motorsport at some level, but never on the world stage, really. They so wanted, how, at this time, how do you know how big Mazda is compared to Toyota or Honda? Yeah, they're way down there. What, so where do I have it? I have it here in a minute, so hang tight. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and what better way to do that than to compete at the biggest endurance race spectacle in the world, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. No Mazda speed. Now this is the one, Volkovila, Johnny Herbert, and Bertrand Gasho. This is the car that has been trying. The Japanese have never won this race. And it's like the holy grail of motorsport to the Japanese. They really, really want to win Le Mans like no other. That's the second car of the Mazda Speed with Pierre Dion, Guerrero Tarada, and Takoshi Yorino. 31, that is the Sauber Mercedes of Carl Wendlinger, Michael Schumacher, and Chris Poitner that we heard from earlier. Mazda started in the 1983 season by sending two of its 717C prototypes, each fitted with a two-rotor Wankel engine, to compete in Group C. Now, Mazda was the only Japanese entry. That car is cool looking. The, the 717? 717? I didn't that look it up. That thing looks rad. Can you I, describe it, it for us? Okay, so it's kind of... Uh, well, it's unique looking. Maybe I shouldn't say it looks rad, but it's got like a it's <laughs> it's got a car front end, but then the the rear end looks kind of like something else like, was bolted to it. It looks like kind of like an upside down Tupperware container with headlights in the front. It looks it looks like a Lola that got smushed. I guess would be and the way. that that's cool. I think it looks cool. I'll I think have to look it up. Right, seven one seven C is that one, and they were fitted with two rotor Wankel engines to compete in the Group C class. Now Mazda was the only Japanese entry, and the two cars finished twelfth and eighteenth. So encouraged. That's not bad. Yeah, encouraged the if automaker. You finish, that's right. Good. You're right. Finishing alone is an accomplishment. So twelfth and eighteenth. So Mazda was encouraged. The automaker continued to participate in Le Mans the following years, which saw a steady performance evolution from the double-rotor 717C that we just mentioned up through the three-rotor 757 and eventually to a four-rotor design. And that's where it's really at. That is where it's at, Chris. Now, Mazda's endurance participation was increasing in success, but they really were never seen as the strongest Japanese entrant. It was everyone's consensus that at the time, the first Japanese automaker to win Le Mans would be either Toyota or perhaps Nissan. Mazda wasn't even considered. After all, Toyota and Nissan were the two largest automakers in Japan, and their funding and manpower in Group C were tenfold compared to the little-fledgling Mazda. In 1991, however, all that changed. The 1991 24-hour Le Mans event was a perfect storm of factors. You see, the FIA, the organizing body, was actively pursuing an integration of the 3.5-liter naturally aspirated V10 engine into the series, which would position the race to be in line with Formula One regulations. They wanted basically to be in line with what Formula One was doing for the 91 season. TWR... Jaguar, Mercedes-Benz, and Peugeot all built cars to these new regulations with the 3.5-liter V10. However, the privateer teams, they simply didn't have the funding to develop a brand new drivetrain for the season, so there were simply not enough of these new cars to fill the grid. 
The FBI, FIA, excuse me, allowed the first 10 spaces on the grid to then be reserved to the fastest qualifying new 3.5 liter cars, while the rest of the field was made up of older Formula Group C cars. Okay, so you had Group C1, which is all of these 3.5 liter new cars, and Group C2, which is basically everything else. Right. At the same time, the new rules enforce stricter fuel usage regulations. So along with the goal of enhancing power and track modifications, which reduced lap times by several seconds, each team was also required to reduce fuel consumption. Now, Mazda didn't fall in line with the new 3.5 liter cars. They're using rotary engines, these wankles. They're not using these 3.5 liter V10. Instead, they brought their newly designed 787B chassis. Which, which had the legendary 26B Yes, engine. the R26B. So this motor was awesome. Did you, are we going to get into that? We are motor? going to get into it. Okay, this motor We're going is, to get into a very specific uh, factor of this motor. Is it the Mike's, ignition? No, it's not the okay. ignition, but I do mention the ignition. Okay, the okay. ignition is wild on this car. It's pretty cool. All right, so the 787B, it was slotted into the lesser Group C2 category. The 787 was fully constructed with carbon fiber under a honeycomb structure. Mazda wasn't leaving anything to chance with this car, Chris. Nobuhuri Yatomoto was the chassis engineer for Mazda. He made painstaking calculations, finding that even under the most ideal circumstances, the new 787 would only be able to finish 352 laps at the Circuit de la Sarthe, which was equivalent to the number of laps that the Alpha Racing Team's Porsche 962 achieved as the second runner-up. So basically, they did all this calculation and figured, all right, even best-case scenario, this car is only going to come in second. Right, because it just doesn't have the longevity. Exactly. So, in Plus, order, to, I mean, think about who you're going up at the up against at the time with Porsche and the 962. Yeah, these are ridiculously a high funded. They have a ton of engineering that's gone into them over the years. Right. And this is just little Mazda coming with their crazy contraption. Oh, those little wankle guys, huh? Yep, for sure. I'm sure, like they said, they were never seen as a true competitor. So, in order for Mazda to win outright. At the 1991 Le Mans, they estimated they would need to complete at least 367 laps. So, Chris, it's really simple math. In order to win at Le Mans, you need to travel the greatest distance in the allotted 24 hours. Right, most laps. So to boil it down, they calculated that in order to win, they needed to cover 15 laps more than was theoretically possible with their existing car. So how do you cover more distance in a given time? So they're just assuming that the car, the motor, knowing what they know, mm -hmm. is it will not make it. There's a there's nope. That's the, not it. It will make it. It's just not fast enough. Oh, it just cannot push the it's car. It's just okay. not as fast as the Porsches and the other things out there. They need to go further in 24 hours. How do you go further in a given time, Chris? Go faster. You go faster. And in order to go faster, all things being equal, you need more power. So Mazda went back to the drawing board attempting to extract more power from the 787's R26B four-rotor Wankel engine, which, by the way, at this point, had already made 650 horsepower. So what is a 962 making back in the day? I don't know what those made for power. Probably around 700. Well, I guess you've got qualifying trim and you've got everything. I, right. 730 horsepower, but a qualifying <clears throat> trim? I bet they could turn that up a little bit. Yeah, so it seemed an almost impossible mission. Yet the engineers discovered a few modifications. They were well, here's the thing, though. Sorry. No, what, go ahead. what did you say they were making for power? 
Six fifty. So six, they're making six fifty. Porsche's making well over seven hundred, seven thirty, seven fifty. Yep. Qualifying trim, who knows more? But if you're making even seven hundred horsepower instead of six fifty in a twenty four hour time period, that is a huge yes. amount of power. That might over be your that, fifteen laps easily. Fifty horsepower is. <clears throat> You know, I think every even in the quarter mile, every what ten horsepower you have, or every hundred horsepower you have, or something is like a tenth quarter mile. Yeah, is different. But I'm just saying that horsepower matters, especially over that long period. Exactly. Of time. We just did the math. It yep. totally does. So, like I said, it was basically impossible. Yet these engineers discovered a few mods they could do that were instrumental in the engine's power output. The first of which is increasing the number of spark plugs per chamber from two to three. Quote unquote spark plugs right no these as far as i can tell were actual spark plugs so what, so, did, what did you want to say they have laser beams that's laser not ignition. on this engine oh that's not this one no oh but it's so cool they were just developing that technology well, so yeah so here's this is a good aside though so you think about it on this rotor you have this basically apex seal that needs to sweep against a cylinder wall so anytime you cut a hole in that cylinder for wall, a spark plug you are reducing what compression right which means less power right so how do you basically make an ignition system that is on a flat wall by shooting laser beams by shooting it. lasers into it <laughs> through a tiny hole amazing yeah no this one actually had three actual spark plugs okay um which again allowed them to make for higher compression and a quicker fuel burn the other big change is probably one of my favorite racing technologies ever okay that's a all right ever Okay. Variable length velocity stacks. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Well, that's not that much different than having. Well, I guess it is. The length doesn't change. When you have like a variable runner yeah. in an engine, you're this just changing. Different. You're just basically changing the vacuum that that is the speed of the air moving in there. This is the actual velocity stack getting bigger and longer. Just wait. We are going to nerd way out of okay, this. Okay, I'm ready. All right. <sighs> Let me explain. Any well-tuned engine, especially a naturally aspirated race engine, has the ends of its intake track shaped kind of like a trumpet, right? The trumpet shape smooths the airflow of the air into the intake, allowing the most air possible to flow through a given restriction of volume in the intake. This is essentially what a velocity stack is. Right. And you have two, you have, so you have a velocity stack, but sometimes if you have a carburetor engine, you'll actually have like a, uh, a choke in there too. Yeah, a little venturi. A little venturi that helps right. speed the air up as it goes through by the fuel. That's actually a misnomer too. So the venturi in a carburetor choke, this is off script, but the venturi in a carburetor choke is actually to speed up the air. When you speed up air, you're actually creating that's what a I just, vacuum. That's what I just said. Okay, speed up. <laughs> but the purpose isn't to speed up the air, it's to create vacuum, which then will suck the required fuel in to atomize it's the mixture that's basically what i just said okay sorry it's not to speed it up for the sake of speeding it up oh, of it's course to create well, you have negative you have different um you can't have too big a carburetors as well because the air while you'll be getting a higher volume of air it doesn't atomize the fuel properly because it's not going fast enough that's why my engine sucks at low revs now <laughs> <laughs> why did you are you just running sleeves in there or something yeah so it's supposed to be a 28 millimeter venturi and sure. i no 27 and i went up to 34s oh okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right well yours don't, regardless yours are fixed uh, yeah, fixed length. This is fixed so. length. So these velocity stacks, the length of these velocity stacks is what's really important, though. You see, the downward motion of the piston during the intake stroke of a conventional engine right. creates engine vacuum that then draws the air-fuel mixture into the cylinder. However, as we know of the four cycles of a standard auto-cycle engine, which are 
intake, compression, combustion, and exhaust, the intake valve is closed more often than it's open. If the incoming air in the ignition, or I'm sorry, in the intake track, reaches the valve at a point, when the valve is closed, the leading edge of the onrushing mixture basically bumps into a, a brick wall, right? right? It stops abruptly, and that creates a denser air. So it's basically a pressure wave. And if you have a combustion chamber, I'm sorry, an intake chamber, like a, an intake manifold, it actually causes turbulence in the intake manifold. That's what, like, if, especially if you have overlap from your cams being too big, right. you can actually get you know, a little bit of compression coming back through. Right. That's not where we're going, though. Quit okay. confusing the topic. Sorry. All right. So you have air coming in. It hits the intake valve. And as it abruptly hits the valve, building up pressure eventually forces the mixture back up the intake runner. Okay. Imagine, I'm trying to think of something analogous, but like a big, in your, you're in a pool. Okay. Okay. And you push a big mass of water and create a wave. As it hits the wall of the pool, what happens? It comes back. It comes back. Yep. So this is literally the pressure wave of air coming into the engine. When this pressurized air hits the opposite end of the runner, when it's open, it reverses direction and heads back down towards the valve. This sets up an oscillating back and forth pressure wave moving within the intake runner at the speed of sound, which is approximately 1,115 to 1,132 feet per second. If the valve is open, when this newly pressurized intake air, when the wave is coming back down, if that valve is open, you're basically getting a higher than atmospheric pressure, just as if the engine were using a supercharger. I mean, I'm the it's minute in comparison to a up to 1.5 atmospheres. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, so it does matter. It is. Yes, it, it is does. a thing. Yes. Now, a Wankel doesn't have valves per se, but the effect is still the same. So when you're tuning an engine that's doing this type of thing, you're trying to do your best to just kind of average it out right. with the fuel mixture. Yep, exactly. So this supercharging effect called resonance supercharging allows more air and fuel to be packed into the cylinder, producing of course, more power. Now, naturally... So for a regular car that you and I are driving around on the street, you do not want this because it's not going to be easy to drive unless you're at wide open throttle. No, that's not true. It's every car basically has this effect, but with a fixed intake runner, you're only having that exact overlap happen at one point in the RPM range. Right. Okay. So that's why you don't tune specifically for it because otherwise it'll run like, like you said, but it won't be ideal. It's only ideal at one point. Now, resonance supercharging, as I was going to say, only provides the benefit at points where the compressed mixture reaches the intake valve at a point where the valve is open. And that's so minute. You're dealing with such high speeds, that 1,100-something feet per second. At 9,000 RPMs. Exactly. So, as I said, the supercharging only occurs at certain engine speeds. This engine speed depends on the frequency of the pressure wave. The frequency of a wave is inversely proportional, Chris, to its wavelength. That is, a short wavelength means a higher frequency and vice versa. Right. In this case, the wavelength is determined by the length of the space in which the pressure wave can move, i.e. the length of the intake runner. All else being equal, the longer an intake runner, the lower the engine speed at which resonance supercharging occurs, because, of course, it takes longer for that pressure wave to travel that distance. But what if you wanted to take advantage of this resonance supercharging effect across the entire operating range of an engine? Well, in that case, you would need the length of the intake runner to dynamically change to match the engine RPM at every given moment. Enter the variable length intake runner system. <laughs> Whoever made this possible is... 
Well, it's worth noting that the system isn't exclusive to this Mazda race engine. Many engines have some sort of variable length intake, like my old Golf R32, the, the Mark IV with the uh, VR6 in it, had an intake that had little flaps that would switch incoming air from a long runner to a short runner right. at certain RPMs. So basically, but now, it was either or. Yes, and it so now what does that do? That gives you two points in the RPM range. Where basically just really your helps out with torque down low. Exactly, is what it does. the concept is also used on current Formula One cars and even the Ferrari La Ferrari. The difference in these is that those systems are still very short not changing all that much from short to long. Not only that, many of these systems are still only optimized, as I said, for two points in the engine's rev range. The variable length velocity stacks on Mazda's R26B are infinitely variable, literally sliding in and out like a trombone as they rev up and down. The result is a very, very, very long intake. The entire mechanism was controlled by an ECU with the ability to change from minimum runner length to maximum runner length in half a second. Whoa. Thereby being able to keep up with the extremely quick revving properties of the Wankel rotary engine. Is there a video of this operating somewhere? I that think we there can, is. We have to, I'll have to look that up. It is nuts, Chris. Go ahead. So this technology allowed the R26B to produce 930 horsepower at 10,500 RPM. That's a, just from going from 600 horsepower to that's wild. There is, are, yes. That's all that's the it's difference. It's nuts. That's, and, what, that's it, what made the difference. And higher compression with the spark plugs. Wow. That's Those incredible. were the two major changes. It is nuts. However, in the interest of durability, this is a 24-hour race after all, the engineers capped engine RPM at 8,500 RPM, reducing total output to 750. What's interesting about the, uh, the rotary engine is that the higher you spin it, it continues to make power. Yeah. Whereas, you know, with an engine like ours, they you just have can't. You have like valve diminishing returns. Yeah. Valve spring float, everything else starts to go to shit. There's too much rotational mass. It just quits making power. Right. These things, if you if your bearings can handle it, just keep revving. Just keep going. So the question though is would this be enough to make the 787B a full seven seconds faster each lap? That's what was needed. After all, fairly significant. Yeah, that's what's required to accomplish the 15 extra laps that were calculated to be necessary to win. To find out, again, Mazda was leaving nothing to chance. So they recruited none other than Jackie Ix, the six-time 24-hour Le Mans champion, to consult for the team on race day. Mazda arrived at the 1991 24-hour Le Mans with two 787Bs, as well as the older Japanese model 787 as a backup. During qualifying, the Mazda teams had already discovered that the 787B was lapping five seconds faster than the outgoing 787. And this thing is two and a half liters, right? Or two point something. It's the calculation doesn't two point, even make sense. Well, whatever. It's like a two and a half liter, 2.6 liter yes. engine. Jaguar was running a seven and a half liter engine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mercedes had a five liter turbo V8. I don't know what a 962's displacement was, like a three, three liter, a 3.2 3 liter. Yeah. 3.2. I'm. <laughs> Yeah, it's puny, right? So the new 787B on qualifying was lapping five seconds faster than that outgoing 787. But in order to achieve better fuel consumption, Jackie Ix instructed the drivers to concentrate on being smooth during acceleration and braking. To assist them, these cars were actually fitted with a bespoke fuel efficiency gauge so they could tailor their throttle application to make full use of the engine's 95% maximum torque between 6,000 and 9,000 RPM while still achieving 
full fuel consumption targets. So they have these stupid gauges on like any hybrid nowadays where it's the fuel efficiency gauge. This is actually a race gauge, Chris. I like it. It was on the Mazda 77B. And I need one of those to go right next to my my G meter that you bought me right here. The fuel efficiency gauge? Yeah. Out of a hybrid? No, out of a <laughs> Mazda. <laughs> this tactic worked, though. During the race, the Jaguar XJR12, which, as you said, used a 7.4-liter <laughs> V12 powered engine, was no, no big surprise, was forced to reduce its speed to control fuel consumption. Remember, this is a new rule this year. They have to basically manage how much fuel they're using. And both the Mercedes C111 and Peugeot 905 cars, which were much faster than the 787B, experienced accidents, mechanical failures, and even a small fire or two. And on the 22nd hour, while in a pit stop, the number 55 Mazda 787B was able to, quote, pass the Mercedes C11 that was in the lead when it experienced a mechanical failure and was forced to withdraw. So here we are, the number 55 car pits, right? Right. Tires, brakes, whatever it is. And they're learning over the radio. You know that car in the lead? It just broke down. You're in the pits. You're now in the lead. And you're, I just imagine... I mean, these guys are serious business, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're like, cold okay, as ice, let's get out there. I mean, it's it, these guys that are, are racing are, are the real deal. But I imagine just somebody's got to be shaking a like, little bit. Some oh. goosebumps, some, some butterflies. Wait a second. This could actually yes. happen. And that type of paradigm shift is what really separates the, the men from the boys, right. right? And it was, I think, as you said, kind of surprising. Because since the lead change of the race happened so unexpectedly, the technical director, Hiroi Namura, decided to change their tactics after discussing it with Jackie X, who basically was the one who brought it up. Johnny, How many laps in are we at this point? We're 22 hours in. Okay, so There's two hours left. All right, 200 and something laps probably. Yeah. Johnny Herbert, who was the most familiar driver with the track, was left in the car to finish the final three stints. So he's in the pit in the car. They were going to change out drivers. Jackie X says, you guys are in the lead. This guy knows the track. Keep going. Each stint is 45 minutes. So he's finishing out the race now. He's, you're in. Well, he drives for, He was a Formula One driver, too. I mean, he's, he knows what he's doing. But according to Herbert, his drinking water had already depleted during the first stint out of the last three laps. With the race coming to a conclusion in the sunny afternoon, temperatures began to rise. And inside a cramped, hot cockpit of the race car, Herbert was literally cooking himself. Well, this is France in the summer. It's hot. Yes. But through his steadfast still and discipline, Herbert was able to hold it together barely. The number 55 Mazda 787B crossed the finish line with a two-lap lead over the runner-up Jaguar XJR12, making Mazda the first Japanese automaker to ever win the 24-hour Le Mans. As Johnny Herbert returned the car to the pits after crossing the finish line, he fainted due to hydration and was immediately rushed to the medical unit for treatment. He was so severely dehydrated that he wasn't able to stand at the Le Mans podium. So literally, crosses the finish line, drives into the pits, passes out in the pits. That's, I mean, you're running on pure adrenaline. Talk about a close call. So... After the winning 787B car was shipped back to just, Japan. Okay, just imagine this, okay? okay? You're in the 787B, all right? You're, you're Johnny Herbert. Mm-hmm. 
you're going down the the Molson Strait, you know, 200 miles an hour, whatever yep. you're doing. That thing is just screaming. Oh my goodness! You haven't had anything to drink in an hour. There's a couple laps left. Your your vision is probably shrinking, right? I mean, you're yeah. probably seeing stars at this point. Yeah. Your vision, you're starting to get tunnel vision, but you're just you just have to finish. Imagine the, the I guess the best word is the gumption. Imagine the gr- sure. the grit exactly. that it requires to be a to like, just a, keep going. I was out running in the rain the other day. I ran three blocks and I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, this is brutal. And then I just started walking. I'd already had enough. <laughs> I ran it. three blocks and that That's was enough for me. That's the equivalent of being on the like last lap and being like, you know what? I'm tired, guys. Screw it. I just, you know, there's all these stories that surround this race where it, it, it it's just, it brings out just the the elite part of humanity where it's it's all it's pushing through it's making sacrifices and i think that's what makes this story special is well, is how close it was and how special it was for mazda and how unique and and yeah. basically awe-inspiring the journey of this car and that engine and everything leading up to this point really was right and uh after this car this is a really cool fact so after the winning 787b car was shipped back to japan the engineers at mazda speed took the engine apart examining each part live in front of the japanese media this was such a big deal camera crews are watching them disassemble the car back home the engineers concluded that the engine was designed so well that it would have been able to cope with another 24-hour race with zero maintenance that's incredible. I wonder how many other engines could have done that at the time. None. Unfortunately, even, even the engines that just, for example, Porsche puts in a cup car require um, an, a rebuild after however many hours. Right. You know, they're built to go 24 hours. That's right. what they're built to do. I mean, they'll do more, especially if you're a club racer or something like that. And you need and you're not pushing the car as hard as some of the guys were. But I don't know, man. That's, I, that's pretty Colin great. Chapman of Lotus fame had some famous quote that I'm going to paraphrase that said, if the car doesn't fall apart right after the finish line, it's too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> like basically keep stripping it down. It only has to be stout enough to finish the, to cross the finish line. And I think what's interesting about this period of time is if you look at the cars, if you look at the Jaguar, you look at the 787, you look at the 962. They're so different. I was going to say they're so similar. I was going to say exactly the opposite thing really? that you just said. If you look at like, like the silk cut uh, uh, Jaguar, they all have this similar headlight design. If you weren't a car person, you at a glance, you would probably think they were all the same. Look at the engine technology. I'm talking about visuals. Not, okay. Obviously, the engine technology is wildly so different between different. all three. You've got a flat six 3.2 liter turbocharged. <laughs> turbocharged. You've got the 7.4 liter Massive monster. V12. And then you have a 2.6 liter rotary. When in history is that going to ever happen again? Where we have that much diversity? Because like I always say, there's only so many ways you can design an electric motor. It's not like we're going to be like, oh, well, these guys have this new. I mean, maybe you'll get some different battery technology, but that's boring. Yeah, it kind of is. So unfortunately, this was actually the last year a Wankel Rotary would ever race at Le Mans. The following year in 92, the rules of Le Mans Group C completely changed. And in order to return to Le Mans to defend their title, Mazda had to develop a new car entirely, the MXR01. And since the new car had to use this new 3.5 liter V10 engine, rather than designing a complete blank slate engine that Mazda couldn't afford to do, they decided to purchase the Formula One engines from British racing engineer manufacturer Judd. Because remember, right. the whole purpose of this was to make it in line with Formula One. Right. They also used the Jaguar XGR14 chassis to put it in. The 92 Milama saw Mazda finishing a very respectable fourth with a completely untested chassis, but it wasn't 
that four rotor Wankel engine. It was actually the final year Group C prototypes. That's like getting dumped by the hottest girl you've ever dated. And then you get like, you start dating a five directly afterwards. <laughs> I mean, this car, honestly, this car sucks. Are it you does. looking at it right now? I, I know what it looks like. I've seen it before. It's the same livery. It's made yeah. to kind of look the same. Isn't. But in comparison, that thing sucks. It's I mean, funny. it's still a cool car. Well, like, but how is a V10 seem pedestrian? Well, when it follows a four-rotor screaming wankle engine, that's exactly. How. That's about it. Well, so, so of course we're talking in the contrast, uh, in the context of the contrast of what it came from. Exactly. So '92 was the final year for Group C prototypes, and with it, the end of the Group C era as a whole. The winning 787B of 1991 is still displayed at the Mazda factory in Hiroshima. With it, lives on the legacy of the wankle engine. From, so, from the brainchild of this crazy German with appalling Nazi involvement to the unimaginable underdog story, with this really was an underdog story of Mazda winning Le Mans, the Wankel really has a truly storied history. But what about the future, Chris? We just mentioned last week that Mazda's engineers are desperate, quote, desperate to bring back a sports car with the Hallmark engine. It's already slated to be used as a range extender on an electric vehicle, but could we possibly see a resurgence of this screaming rotary propelling some sleek new car into the future? Did you hear about what the, the guy took to SEMA? That billet four-rotor? This guy built a billet four-rotor. This year? A billet alloy crankcase. I have not seen this. And took it to SEMA. Like his own billet rotary engine. It's, I'll, I'll see if I can remember to link it in the show notes, but it's absolutely phenomenal it could be the most reliable one ever <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah so that is the story of the wankle and the 787b awesome story it's it's one of the best motorsport stories of all time i still really want to call some of these guys up and see yeah. if we can have them come on the podcast to talk about this kind of thing i think it would be really great to hear from them i, I didn't was, know jackie x was involved there like either. in the pits the whole time like consulting where he was the one that basically said keep johnny in the car keep him going don't stop because you don't can't. stop. Yep. Well, if you won by two laps, if he would have stopped, that would have been just. Yeah, could have been. And who knows? Maybe the fact that he was the one that went on and did it. He was already in the zone. Yeah. It's it's a really cool story. And it, it's it's really the human drama that makes it so. Of course. Otherwise, it doesn't matter if it's just if he if they just go ahead and win. Who cares? I mean, right. lots of somebody wins every single year. <laughs> Good point. Someone is bound to win. Who won in 1996? No clue. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I know when the 962 won and stuff like that. I know some of that stuff, but yeah, it's only because who you're... won in 2004? I have no idea. Who won right. in 1991? Mazda. Yep. All right, guys. Uh, why don't you, if you like stories like this, you like the uh, the history stories, head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. There's all kinds of them there. I mean, we've been do we've been doing that for a year now. Wow, if not more. So yeah. there's all kinds of history stories that are stacked up there. Our last month, I had a couple uh, people comment it was their favorite actually. Really, this last month, was Tommy a, Fitz. Tommy Fitz, that was a good story. Head over to Overcrest. Oh, I'm sorry, Patreon.com/slash/Overcrest. Become a Patreon, support the show, get all the episodes early. Head over to iTunes, leave us a five star review, guys. It really helps. This is awesome. We're finally like consistently um, top twenty automotive podcasts yeah it's awesome we're one of the fastest growing automotive podcasts i cannot thank anyone but you guys for spreading the word telling your friends love you guys thank you and we will see you on monday take care mm -hmm.